The raising of Lazarus isn't Jesus' last miracle, but it is certainly his greatest. And it is one that raises an incredible response from both his friends and also the Jewish crowd that are gathered, his enemies. And this week, we're going to look at, at, at what happens in this story, because the next few sermons are all going to follow on in the reaction to this and what happens. And next week, Gary Blair is going to take us through uh, the reaction of, of the Jewish crowd and just the, the, the pandemonium that ensues because of this. John selects this miracle as the seventh in the book. This is now kind of the, the seventh, the, the perfect number, the, this climactic miracle of our Lord's earthly ministry. Of course, Jesus had raised others from the dead, but Lazarus had been in the grave for four days. The stone was in front of the tomb, the, the, the crowds were in front of it, and Jesus makes, uh, commands the stone to be rolled away, uh, and he walks. This is something that cannot be denied or avoided by the ever-present crowd. We ended last week with this confrontation at the temple. Jesus went into the, ministry, uh, into the wilderness to continue his ministry, and the last verse of the previous chapter, chapter 10, says, and many, uh, and many believed in him there. What we see is that Christ's ministry is fruitful. People are coming to faith, people are getting saved, people are seeing what he's doing, they're hearing what he's teaching, and they are convicted by the truth of the Savior. And in the midst of all of that, this personal emergency comes along. And it poses this question that if Jesus cannot do anything with death, then whatever he can do amounts to absolutely nothing. Because death is our last enemy. It is the one major consequence of the fall that everybody will face. It is the consequence that cannot be denied and cannot be avoided. And it's the world's surest statistic, isn't it? That one in one people will die. And I've been intrigued this week, thinking of this message and reading and, and listening to tributes that have flooded into the Queen this week. Uh, the new King Charles said, and to my darling mama, as you begin your last great journey to join my dear late papa, I simply say to this to you, thank you. Prince William says, well, no one's grandmother thanks them for talking about their age. My own grandmother has been alive for nearly half, uh, nearly a century. And it got me thinking, because this passage is all about perspective. And it got me thinking this week of just how many perspectives of the Queen have we seen? We have seen the perspective of a son. We've seen the perspective of a grandson. You will hear there was an amazing man. I'm sure somebody will know his name. Sir, somebody, grandson of Sir Winston Churchill. He's a Tory MP, was. And he was the Queen's first Prime Minister. And he went into a battle riding a horse with a sword. That's a long, a long, long time ago. And it's amazing to hear of different people's perspectives as they come to the Queen. And this passage now alludes us to perspectives because we find here two perspectives. We have the earthly perspective of Martha and Mary and the disciples and the Jewish crowd. And then we have the divine perspective of the Lord Jesus. And this passage is good for our souls because... Lazarus is symbolic for us of the extremities that we face and we encounter in life. It brings to us, in a very real way, the, the truth and the, the dynamic that we all face 
whether that be death or traumatic experiences, scary experiences, sad experiences, hurtful experiences. Lazarus' death encapsulates all of that. And in the midst of it all, we see how our Heavenly Father deals with us in the midst of those problems. I think this story teaches us three things. It teaches us the mission, the compassion, and the power of God. These are all words that, as we've gone through John's gospel, I've used as sermon headings. Um, And we're going to start in the mission. I'm going to focus mostly on the compassion and summarize with the power. But the mission or the purpose of Christ. We're getting to the nitty-gritty bit of John. We're getting to the bit where the Passover feast isn't very far away. In the next few days, we will see the triumphant entry of Jesus. A few days in the story, still a few weeks away for us. But we have this triumphant entry into Jerusalem, Hosanna. Uh, Here comes the king, the laying down of palm branches, all the joyous celebrations that come with that. But in all of that, I'm struck by the words of Peter uh, at Pentecost in Acts 2. When he talks of Jesus being the greatest sermon I think ever preached by any man that isn't Christ. He was delivered, he says that Jesus was delivered up to be crucified according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And I think in this previous 10 chapters, we have seen that, that definite plan and foreknowledge of God unfold before us. And I think that's exactly what we see in this passage. We see this deliberate and foreknown plan. This passage points us again to the wonderful divine activity of the Lord Jesus. Not just in his actions, but also in his words. This is our timeline of what we look at here. A messenger is sent by the sisters, comes to Jesus. On that day, Lazarus dies. The next day, the messenger returns to Bethany. Uh, Undoubtedly, will have relayed Jesus' message to the sisters. Day three, Jesus waits another day. Then he leaves. And day four, Jesus arrives in Bethany. Jesus is doing ministry in the wilderness. It's fruitful. People are getting saved. Things are good. This messenger comes to him and says in verse 3, Lord, the one you love is ill. You can imagine the anguish and the fear, the hurt that is sent by these sisters with these messengers. Lord, our brother is seriously, seriously ill. Please, would you help? They were so desperate that they sent for the only man that they believe is capable of healing their brother. And Jesus responds to them in verse 4 to the messenger. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Poor messenger. (laughs) This messenger has come with this message of, come on, this guy's really, really ill. Come and see him. And then he's told, this won't lead to death. I'll be glorified. Now you're going to wait. I can't imagine what it would have been like for him having to go back and relay that message. But this messenger would return home to the sisters. Lazarus was already dead. Probably makes it far harder. How on earth does he relay this message of Jesus that doesn't say I'm coming instantly or I'm going to heal from a distance like he's done before? How on earth does he convey that message to these sisters that are now grieving their dead brother? Well, Jesus was urging them to believe. He was urging them to believe in his word. He was asking them not to be discouraged by the circumstances that was in front of them. Or we could say that there was a purpose to their suffering. 
Jesus could have gone immediately to Bethany, but we're told in verse 6 that he very deliberately waits another couple of days. Why? For the glory of God and so that the Son may be glorified. And as we think about perspective, we're met here with God's perspective and purpose. We're met here that there is a heavenly perspective and purpose that Martha and Mary just do not get. They can't see it. They don't understand it. And if you continue all the way down to verse 15, Jesus uh, reveals to the disciples that the purpose of waiting was so that you might believe. Lazarus is dead. I wasn't there. Good. Now you'll see my providence and power. No doubt these disciples were utterly, utterly perplexed at what was just said. First of all, Jesus, everybody knows you like Lazarus. Everybody knows your friends, so why on earth haven't you gone? Why did you even permit him to get sick? Even more than that, Lord, why did you wait? Or for that matter, why didn't you heal from a distance like we know you can do? And it's interesting because Jesus loved this family. And to us in an earthly perspective, it almost looks like Jesus' behavior seems to contradict this love. But then for a moment, we pause and we look at that word love. And we see that the love of God is not some kind of love that pampers us. It is not some kind of love that's only purpose, is a, a, a comfort, is safety. But it is a perfect love. The fact, of course, we all know this. I hope we all know this. That because he loves us, does not shelter us, does not uh, keep us from the hardships of this life. It doesn't protect us from the pain that we so very real know in this world. But what we see is the perfect love of God. And of course, we see that most prevalently in the Father sending his Son. In perfect love, the Father permitted his beloved Son to come to drink from the cup of wrath and experience the shame and the pain of the cross. That isn't a very cozy, pampered love, but it is a true love. And it is a perfect love. And what it leads us to is the very real reality that we must never think that the love of God and suffering are incompatible. Jesus could have prevented Lazarus' sickness. He could have healed him from where he was. But he chose not to. Because he saw in this sickness an opportunity for God to be glorified. It is not their comfort that was important, but it was the glory of God. And we find ourselves confronted continually by disease or disappointment, delay or death. And in all of that, the encouragement we have, the solid rock on which we can stand is, is Christ is revealed to us in the word of God. We are called to live by faith in the eternal heavenly perspectives and not our own we are to live by faith and not by sight you see the situation looked utterly hopeless to these sisters but yet they knew and they trusted that he was the master of everything and i wonder friends what trials or tragedies god has or is or will bring into your life and through it how god may be glorified 
You see, we hold this earthly perspective. Many things that happen in this life we will never understand. We will never wrap our heads around. We may never understand how something awful may glorify God. We read those words of Psalm 73, 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So we come then from this pre-Jesus coming, this very bleak picture, but in in a picture in which Jesus makes his, his purpose and his mission incredibly clear. So we move then to what I think is the most amazing bit of this story. And we move to the compassion of Christ. So they went. And in fact, before that, there is a bit I absolutely love in here. It is um, the end of the disciples going. And shout out to Thomas the twin. Because Thomas the twin doesn't get it. But he says, let us also go that we may die with him. I love it that he hasn't a clue what's going on, but he loves Jesus and he trusts Jesus and he's just like, I'm going with him. I love that. So they went. Jesus uh, and those with him, they went to Bethany near Jerusalem where Jesus found Lazarus that had been in the tomb for four days. We've got to understand that this is the place in which they just tried to stone Jesus. This is not comfy territory. This is not a safe place. But we arrive and we're met with this uh, gathering of Jews consoling Martha and Mary. Verse 19, I think, is a lovely reminder for us because so often we look at these crowds with such judgment and see them as always bad, but we see this nice bit of character here that they are showing compassion and empathy with the sisters. So Martha goes and meets Jesus. Mary remained seated. She was probably so consumed by her grief, the last thing she wanted to do was speak to anybody. She probably had a million questions, just like the disciples. Why did you let my brother die? Surely if you loved us, you wouldn't have let this happen. And we move to this discourse from verses, I'm going to read it, 20 to 26. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him. And Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So we come then to the fifth of our I am statements of the Lord Jesus. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. And I am the resurrection and the life. I don't think that's going to show up. That's okay. Do you believe? And Martha's response, in the midst of all the tragedy, in the midst of all the questioning, yes, Lord, I believe. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. You see, Martha had been tested by, been tested with both grief and loss. But yet she allowed her Savior to refine her like gold in a fire. 
And standing in front of all this mess and this tragedy and this sorrow and this grief, she believed. You know, the statement of Jesus is far more than a verse of comfort. This is the gospel in the nutshell kind of verse. This is a verse that gives us a glimpse of the very character of God. And it tells us that God is compassionate to man. The sinless one, the perfect one, the author and sustainer, the perfecter of our faith, gave his life for you. I am the resurrection and the life. I will overcome the grave, Jesus is saying. There is no more death because of me. And though your earthly body will die, you shall never die because you will reign with me. What utter grace from such a selfless and compassionate God. How undeserved that the Lord would reach out to us in the, the depths of our sin and give us life. So each of us is confronted with a question this morning, a very important question, and that question is, do you believe this? Martha does. Do you? I don't ask this as a trivial question or as a passing question, but I ask it because your eternal destiny depends on it. We read in Revelation 20, verse 12, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Let me remind you, friends, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives, believes in me, shall never die. Do you believe this? This question is is utterly fundamental to all of life. It is utterly fundamental to your eternal destiny. Do you believe that the Lord Jesus is the resurrection and the life? We will read soon in, in from the upper room, Jesus de declared to his followers as they are totally stuck saying, Lord, what on earth are we going to do without you? And he proclaims, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you believe this? Martha calls on Mary. He, she tells her to come and to meet Jesus. The crowds follow her. We're in verse 32 now. Uh, Mary found Jesus and cried out, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And I find verse 33 utterly astonishing. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the, G the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. We then move to the shortest verse in the Bible in verse 35. Jesus wept. And again in verse 38, we find that our Savior was deeply moved again. What we have in front of us is our Savior's humanity laid before us. But I think it's important for us to spend a couple of moments looking at what it is that caused Jesus to weep. Jesus didn't weep because Lazarus was dead. 
The Jews in verse 36 assume that this is why he wept. But this is the creator and sustainer of all things. And he wasn't moved to tears because his friend was dead. But this is where I think we see the compassion of our Savior. Why did Christ weep? Firstly, he wept because he has compassion for suffering. One reason that, that Jesus felt such deep compassion is he was really sad looking at his friends. He was really sad that his friends were broken and hurting. He was so, so sad that they were suffering. Jesus let him die. He, he knew he deliberately delayed in coming. He didn't heal from a distance. And all the reasons behind that were good and merciful and glorious. But it does not mean that he took the suffering that it caused lightly. You know, we can be so in danger when we think of the, of the plans of God that we think of this cold, distant God. But that's not what we find. What we find is a tender Jesus that is deeply moved and troubled by the grief of his friend. Jesus will always ultimately choose what will ultimately bring his father glory. And sometimes, as in Lazarus' case, that involved affliction and it involved grief. But Jesus does not take delight in any affliction or grief itself. Jesus did not take any pleasure in his friend's suffering. Maybe you need to hear it, but God does not delight in your suffering. Jesus is sympathetic. He is the image of the invisible God. And in the tomb of Lazarus, we have a glimpse of, of how the Father feels over us. We read those last words in Matthew's Gospel, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. God is with you, friends, in the midst of suffering. The second reason is I think it highlights just the utter chaos of sin. Jesus wept over the chaos of sin. As God the Son who had come into the world to destroy all of the devil's works, Jesus was about to deliver death, its final death blow. But sin grieves God deeply. And so do the wages of sin that is death. And ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, he had endured sin's horrific destruction. And I think this was just one of those moments where it was so laid before the Lord Jesus. He so saw the consequences and what he needed to do. It overwhelmed him. Death has consumed almost every human being ever created. Except Elijah and Enoch. But it had, it, it had taken Lazarus. And of course this was not an eternal Resurrection, Lazarus will die again. But tears of anger and longing were mixed with Jesus' tears of grief. He longed for the day when this would be no more. Thirdly, it, it, Jesus cried because there was the reality of the price that was about to be paid. You see, Jesus wept because of the cost he was about to pay to purchase not only the short-term resurrection of Lazarus, but his everlasting life. Lazarus' everlasting life. Because the cross was just days away. And no one knew the inner distress that the Lord Jesus was feeling. Nobody ever will experience that. 
This resurrection of Lazarus was a gift of grace that was experienced by Lazarus and seen by those that were gathered, but oh, it was not free. Jesus was going to die a horrific death to purchase it. To purchase the eternal salvation of Lazarus and you and I. You see, the most horrific part was not the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, as unimaginable as it would have been, but it was the fact that he was alone. He was dreading the wrath of his father. The one who knew no sin became Lazarus' sin. He became our sin. He became the sin of all who would come and believe in him so that we might become the righteousness of God. The reality of what lay before the Lord Jesus weighed heavily. And fourth, this would be the cause of his own death. He knew that the raising of Lazarus would be the final nail in his hands. I won't touch on it because it's where we're going next week, but but he knew, he knew that if I do this public act, this is it. This is the final straw for this group of people that hate me, for this group of people that believe I am a blasphemer and what I do is wrong. This is it. This is the thing that will take Jesus to the cross. John Piper that said, giving Lazarus life sealed Jesus' own death. I think these are some of the reasons why we see Jesus weep, why we see Jesus greatly troubled. And they also give us a glimpse into how God views our suffering and how God views death. His reason for not sparing us these things, these sinful realities of this life are righteous and they are glorious. But in the midst of it all, he is full of compassion. He hates the chaos that sin brings. And he alone has suffered more than we will ever know. But he has bought the cost of our eternal redemption. So if we are called then to be like Christ, and if Christ is compassionate to us, what does that look like for us? Compassion is a characteristic of God. We read it in Exodus 34, the the NIV says, and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Compassion, friends, is a sign of Christian maturity. For us to have compassion with others means that we suffer together. Compassion is not distant, but compassion is built on a deep love, first and foremost in God, but a love for others. You see, Jesus wept because he loved. He loved Martha and he loved Mary and he was so devastated at the reality and the brokenness of humanity. And I believe that compassion in us grows as we grow in our love for others. So how do we grow? How do we cultivate a a, a culture of compassion both in us but also in our church for one another? I think the first answer is we listen. Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus because he knew them. He spent time with them. I think as we listen to people's pain, as we watch their discomfort and we, and we become aware of how people act, 
of when we begin to recognize if somebody is unsure or afraid or confused or defeated. We allow our love, our empathy, our compassion to be shaped by those things. So often we are scared to let our hearts fully understand somebody else's pain because we're scared of what it will bring forward for us. But our call in Romans 12 is rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Secondly, I think it's also about trying to practice seeing people through God's eyes and not our own. We always look at people through our own lenses. We always put ourselves as a benchmark and everybody else is either we believe above us, below us, somewhere in the middle. It's not the way Jesus looks at us. Is this person better looking than me? Is this person more successful than me? Is this person happier than me? Is this person more powerful for me? And our compassion will be shaped by how we answer those questions of a person. You see it, don't you? You see it in the media world when we hear of the tragic suicide of a celebrity. We will often see, but they had everything. It's not real. It doesn't count. Of course it does. Of course it does. Compassion. Compassion is not arrogant and it isn't boastful. But a compassion for us as Christians is deeply rooted in the compassion that God shows us as sinners by sending his son. We'll wrap it up in Christ's power. In verses 21, 22, 24, we see Martha acknowledge the power of Jesus. Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever uh, you ask from God, God will give you. I know that you will rise again. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Martha is sure of the the sovereignty, the supremacy of Christ. And we see it, don't we? In, In verse 39, Jesus says, remove that stone. Take the stone away. Martha says, but Jesus is going to stink. He's been in there for four days. And Jesus reminds them of how he opened in verse 40. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? This is it. This is the moment that will be the last straw for the Jews that are gathered. This is the moment that in front of everyone there, the Lord Jesus would show his great power and his great compassion to the people from verse 41. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around so that they might believe that you sent me. Jesus doesn't even have to say this. He doesn't have to look at the Father, go to the Father because he is God, but he does because he's attesting to the people around him that his purpose in this and when Jesus said these things he cried out with a loud voice Lazarus come out the man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth and Jesus said to them unbind him and let him go all I can think of as I read that is back to those words of John the Baptist Behold, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, the experience of Lazarus shows us 
what happens when a sinner trusts in Jesus. Lazarus was dead, as are we all in our trespasses and our sins before God. He was decaying because of death, and they go together. There was a gradual rotting happening in his body. All people are spiritually dead, some more decayed than others, but no one could be more dead than anybody else. Lazarus was raised from the dead by the power of God. And all who trust in Christ are given new life and lifted out of the grave of sin. Lazarus was set free from the grave clothes and given new life. And you'll find in the next chapter, in John 12, that Lazarus is seated with Jesus. So too, friends, will we be seated with Christ in heavenly places, enjoying spiritual food and fellowship. And you see, because of this great change in Lazarus, I mean, you don't get much of a bigger change than somebody being dead and then not dead. He was this living witness. We don't, there's no words of Lazarus recorded, but his daily walk was enough to attest to the power of God. So, we've seen the mission and the purpose of Christ to glorify the Father. We have seen the compassion of God laid before us. And we have seen the immeasurable power of God that will now take Christ to the cross. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you know the transforming of the resurrection and the life? If you don't, I urge you to consider the offer of Christ. I urge you to consider greatly because your eternal destiny depends on it. And friends, if you do believe, is your life marked with the compassion of Christ, the compassion that Christ extends to you? Let's pray. Lord, how gracious and how compassionate you are. How privileged we are to, to come before you as a saviour that knows what it is to walk in the ways of grief and trial. That even in the midst of the things of this life, you are with us. You have promised to never leave nor forsake us. And Lord, in those times when our earthly perspective can make no sense of the things in front of us, help us to believe. Help us to trust in you. That in your divine perspective, you continue to work out your plans and your purposes in a way we cannot understand. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your mission, your compassion, your power that is extended before us. And we surrender ourselves to you, Lord. And ask that you would continue that work in us. In your name I pray. Amen.